This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Another thing one hears about writing for children, and I'd love to know whether it's a myth or not, is that children are very severe critics. Well, I think they take the, the, the books far more seriously than adults. If you read a novel, a good, goodish novel, you read it, you enjoy it, you put it down. And that's it. And then you go look for the next one. If a child picks up a book and likes it, that's not the end of it, you know. It's read at least four or five and sometimes 15 times. And each time, it's got to stand up to that. Sooner or later, some of them finish by knowing them by heart. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Buy the Book. I am Lee Chui Lin, and with me, as always, is my fellow reader from childhood, Sharmila Ganesan. Yes, thank you. And uh, we are extremely excited because we are talking about a writer who is one of our shared favourites, very much a part of our reading from childhood all the way through to adulthood. It also happens to be uh, his birthday in the month of September. Rod Dahl was born on 13th September 1916, and he is going to be the focus of our bibliography episode this month. I'm so excited. Also, I low-key thought you would say my fellow witch, my fellow chocolate lover. Uh, my fellow twit. Yes, any <laughs> number of things, which I think is already an indication of how big fans we are of Roald Dahl. Very interesting and complicated man, I would say. And complicated partly also because his legacy has since been reframed in a couple of ways. But I think if you look at just the works themselves, there's so much to talk about already. But then when you look outside of that and, and the life that he's led and all of the things that he's managed to do, Honestly, I reacquainting myself with his life, I, I kept wondering how one person could be this accomplished and this interesting. So we're going to try to speed through or to Cliff's notes, the, the <laughs> life a little bit, partly because the writing, there's so much to talk about. But to begin at the beginning, Rod Dahl was born in Cardiff, Wales, to Norwegian parents. So he was born to Harold Dahl and Sophie Magdalene Dahl. And his father passed away when he was relatively young, as did his sister uh, at the age of seven. But his mom chose to raise their family in Wales to remain there, partly because of the belief in the British school education system. And that has had a big role, I think, in shaping the way Rod Dahl approached well, I was going to say story, but it's not so much story, I think, as what he was against, right? Because he experienced a number of incidents of bullying, of hazing, for instance, in the school system within the UK. And you see those sorts of things creep in, of course, into the autobiography, Boy, but also subsequently into other stories. So, so many things from his life, I think, once you know more about the life he lived, the things he went through, show up in his stories. Um not in the least childhood experiences, what it feels like to be a child that is perhaps a little lonely, a little different. He was famously extremely tall. So as a kid, he was known to have felt just kind of ill at ease, even though he went on to become a really accomplished sportsman as well. Uh, all the stories of boarding school and being bullied um, shapes a lot of the ways in which he writes children. But I think also the love for mythology, the love for Norwegian folklore, which most strongly manifests in the witches, and his grandmother and the tales that she tells him. But all of these shape the kind of writing he goes on to do. It also gives him a sort of a love for the macabre, a love for the darker side of things, not shying away from 
even in children's stories, being quite, not realist, but almost pragmatic in the way that life isn't always a box of chocolates, if I can say. No, although chocolates figure very yeah. prominently in stories. But for me, the word I thought you were going to use is matter of fact. Yes, right? thank um, you. That's yeah, exactly it. Because it's just very much things happen and people die. But that doesn't mean that you, the protagonist, a smart, resourceful child, um, has to be downtrodden by that. And, and in that lies very much the appeal of, of Rod Dahl's books. But if we just continue the journey through his life. So after leaving school, he went to work for Shell and found himself therefore in Kenya and then subsequently in um, what is now part of Tanzania. And that was the starting point towards him becoming a fighter pilot, which of course played a very large role in the next section of his life. So he essentially uh, fought for the British Army during the Second World War. And this is documented in Flying Solo, which is the companion novel to Boy. It's often sold as one volume. I mean, when you read through his adventures again, I think we're kind of going to race through some of this. Uh, but he was in active combat. He writes a lot about even incidences of having to bomb areas. He crashed and then he was rescued. And I think he went through a period where he uh, struggled with not regaining his sight, for instance. Uh, yep. And there were some pretty serious injuries, mm -hmm. including to his skull. Basically, in a landing, he struck a boulder mm. and that resulted in some severe injuries. Yes. So then he was discharged and actually went back to flying. But eventually, I think it... Uh, after he finished his tour of duty, he was absorbed into the diplomatic service, which leads to the next part of his life because he was stationed in Washington, D.C., where he says his job was to let Winston, um, <laughs> he, he says Winston, uh, his job was to let Winston, i.e. Winston Churchill, know what was noodling around in FDR's brain. That that was what he said his job amounted to. Uh, it was a bit of an adjustment at first. Um, so when he arrived in Washington. It was in 1942 or so. And so because of that, um, and that was pre-America being involved in the war, I think it was a very sort of whiplashy feel, right? Mm -hmm. Because to go from a country that is war-torn and in many ways war-starved to what would feel like a land of riches. I think at first he struggled a little bit with the, the meaning and the significance of his job, especially having formerly just very recently been a fighter pilot. If I may, the quote is actually a most ungodly, unimportant job. <laughs> Uh, but he did get promoted a number of times as an intelligence officer. He did continue to play a rather significant role in British intelligence in America. He also befriended other intelligence officers who would then go on to be very familiar names to us, including Ian Fleming. You say intelligence officer, I just want to be very clear. He was a spy. Well, yeah. So I was being classy, Sharmila, <laughs> if you want to be sensationalist about it. I'm only being sensationalist because it took me a while to realise that intelligence officer basically means spy. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's a British guy stationed in Washington, D.C. during the war. I think that it kind of speaks for itself. But this is what we're trying to get at, right? Very interesting life. And all of this is leading up to the publication of his first story, which was about flying. It was originally titled A Piece of Cake, uh, but was subsequently renamed to Shot Down Over Libya for more 
direct dramatic effect. And that kickstarts his post-war life as a writer in many ways. Yeah, so even though he went on to become most famously known as a children's author, uh, Roald Dahl didn't start off writing children's books. Um, He wrote essentially short stories, um, adult fiction, still with that sort of macabre, dark humour. But um, it was only a little bit later that he actually went into writing children's fiction. And I think we'll get into the similarities and the differences between those two genres a bit later. But I think it was also at that time that he went on to build a family, right? Essentially, he met his, uh, he met an American actress, Patricia Neal, whom he married in 1953. And they actually l- remained married for 30 years. They had five children, out of which one passed away, one daughter, and one of whom then famously goes on to become the mother of Sophie Dahl, who is the Sophie from the BFG. So I always find these two halves of his life really exciting and interesting, right? Because on the one hand, um, so many stories of, of him being a sort of besotted father, besotted grandfather later on. On the other hand, this fairly uh, prominent kind of rancorous public figure who wrote a lot, uh, clearly had very interesting, uh, very uh, clearly had really strong opinions about not just uh, the war, but also things like, uh, you know, uh, Israel, for instance, which we'll talk about later as well. Israel and religion. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Among other things. So... Patricia Neal and Rod Dahl had, as you say, five children. Those are uh, his five descendants. But while they were married 30 years, while he did also nurse her back to health after she suffered three cerebral aneurysms Mm. that burst, they did divorce in 1980 after he had been having an 11-year affair with the woman who would then become his next wife, Felicity Debrow Croslin, who is now also the person who is in charge of his estate. So anyway... It's a lot. We, we know it's a lot. But I think all of those things are quite important to understand the themes that would then go on to populate Rod Dahl's writing, some of the figures that would appear, um, particularly adult figures, right? And why the adults in Rod Dahl books are frankly horrible. So <laughs> we are going to discuss the books, the writing, the short stories after this. We are today talking about Rod Dahl, who is our bibliography focus for the month of September, having been born on the 13th of September, 1960. Let us know, are you, like us, huge readers and fans of Rod Dahl? Um, do you have a favourite, maybe, that you want to share with a short story or book? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Bombing Frustrated Minds, BFM 89.9. You're very successful. Why do you still write? You don't need to presumably work anymore. Oh, I love it. I love it, yes. I, I don't know what I'd do without having something to work and worry about all day. You've been telling the children who write you that you're now 66, you're getting old and you're feeling old, and if I may say so, you're not looking old. You look as if you're going to go on forever. No, I feel very ancient. (laughs) When eventually you do finally have to give up or want to give up, whichever comes first... Mm. um, When when I die. When you die? Yeah. Is there any particular way in which you want to have been remembered, say, by a child who turns into an adult. You can quote Oscar Wilde and say, when I am gone, I hope it will be said, my sins were scarlet, but my books were red. <laughs>
Hello, everybody. You are listening to Buy the Book with Lynn and Sharmila. Today, we're talking about Rod Dahl uh, because he was born on the 13th of September in 1916. So the month of September is clearly his, clearly his. <laughs> and that's why we're dedicating this episode. Let's now talk about the writing. So we've run through in perhaps too quick fashion, considering the events, um, Rod Dahl's early education, his life, his uh, time in the war, his time as an intelligence officer slash spy, his marriages. And now I think we need to focus on the writing and the fact that he, of course, wrote so many beloved children's books and then also has some really dark, twisty short stories. So I think it's worth starting with the formative writers in his life, right? Because you can see similarities in the kinds of stories he writes later. So he cites Rudyard Kipling, Charles Dickens, Thackeray as some of his favourite writers. Uh, but he also talked about being influenced by Alice in Wonderland, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And so you can see some of these in his works, the love for the fantastical, but also the love for the underdog. Uh, stories of young people caught in difficult circumstances is very Dickensian. I think when you look back at those influences and then you look at the stories that he ended up writing, uh, I feel like some of the criticism that's levelled at him, works that are not appropriate for kids um, or children's stories being too dark for children, actually goes back to adults being uncomfortable with the worlds that he creates for kids, but kids actually loving these worlds. So you and I by now... We've talked elsewhere about people like Neil Gaiman, for instance, have a pretty well-documented enjoyment of darker children's stories. And so that's definitely how we're going to be approaching this. Because I think that if you are, were, or you are currently raising a reader, then you will understand that at a certain point, the fairy tale candy lands no longer do it, right? Because the whole act of reading is about empathy and imagination. And much as we might want childhood to be simple and happy, the truth is that for many of us, it is a confusing and extreme time of our lives, right? It's extremes of emotion, it's extremes of experience, and it's not the daffodils and, you know, glories that we want it to be. And it's a world that you don't actually have control over, which I think is a big feature in a lot of his stories. Absolutely. And that's why, for me, reading Rod Dahl's books in which there is always that undercurrent of darkness, of death, to a degree of bullying, of wanting to gain control over something, of sheer weirdness and fantastical wonders, but also dangers. All of that has always been deeply appealing to me. And I've never, I've never come away from a Rod Dahl book his children's books, being disturbed. The adult stories are a totally different matter, but the children's books have always delighted me partly because of that sense of it's about what a child is able to do for themselves, which means that no matter what else happens, the kid in question is always going to be able to to think their way out of it. I think it's no um, coincidence that so many children's book writers, fantasy writers, YA writers of today still cite Roald Dahl as a formative influence because from the worlds that he creates, from the words that he creates, he, I think, defined the genre of children's literature in a very, very particular way, elevating them from something like Enid Blyton, who has her own kind of genius. But I think this moves away from the everything will eventually be okay and everything is perfect to centering the child. I think it's very notable that most stories are told from the point of view of the child. You can tell that from the titles. Yes. Matilda, Charlie, mm. James. And I also really love the fact that his books often 
the adults are awful, right? Almost uniformly. <laughs> and I think then, but in between them, because we pay so much attention to the awful adults, they're also really great kind adults. There's the grandmother in The Witches. There's Miss Honey. Um, there's even... The grandparents and Charlie. The grandparents and Charlie. Even Willy Wonka himself is a little bit of... Okay, controversial (laughs) figure, I know. Um, A bit of a broken child himself is what I was going to say. I think that... I think that the reason Roald Dahl ends up remaining so enduring is because he's not necessarily writing for adults at all. No, he's not. uh, And he's not writing for likability. So Mm. it's worth saying at this point um, that Roald Dahl seemed to have a bit of a fondness for pranks because one (laughs) of the reasons why he got in trouble early on in life was putting a dead rat in a jar of gobstoppers. Uh, He also replaced some tobacco in a pipe with goat droppings. To be fair, neither of them are funny to me as an adult, maybe as a child, I don't know. Um, And so I think that love of pranks, of the unexpected um, also somewhat make their way into the books, right? In which there is absolutely a a fair amount of that. But yeah, I think to your point about the relationship between adults and and children in Rotdahl's books, the adults who triumph are the ones who understand children. Yes. Right? That's what it comes down to, who understand children as as complicated and messy. But the villains... and, and. so to me, one way in which the villains are, are underplayed or underrated, because they're often talked about almost as if it was a formulaic thing. You know, you're just going to have an, an evil adult and that's going to be the end, the antagonist. But the evil adults also understood something fundamental about children, right? Yeah. And I think that's what made them scary or identifiable for a child reader to go, oh no, Miss Trunchbull knows me. <laughs> No, uh, Miss Trunchbull was exactly who I was thinking about. Um, the all-powerful teacher or headmaster who rules in school, who is larger than life, almost literally physically, but even just in presence, I think this is something a child would automatically recognize. Um, similar to even something like Flesh Lump Eater, he's not scary because he's a giant who eats children, although that's terrifying. Mm. He's scary because he's a big bully and he bullies BFG. Um, and that's something a child can also recognize. So we've been talking about this as if it's always a, a child protagonist, right? Um, but you've got your fair amount of them. Um In the BFG, you could argue it is still Sophie's story. But I'm thinking also of something like Fantastic Mr. Fox, Mm. in which the central character is is not a human at all. And yet, I think the relatability... Well, firstly, not all the stories need to be relatable because some of them are just whimsical and delightful and Quinton Blakey and then it's, you know, it's all good. But the other part of it is it all comes down to be yourself and try hard. Mm-hmm. Right. In many ways, that's what the stories are, whether or not you're you're in a giant peach or in a chocolate factory or a fox. Like that's the what it boils down to. kids don't learn lessons. No. I like that. And it took me a while to realize that, that the, it's not a moralistic story for a child. They're fine to begin with. Yes. Mm. It's actually the world around them that's weird or broken in some way. Which is a good lesson to learn, right, I think. So I wanted to know, what was your first rot doll? The Witches. Ah, that's a nice introduction. It is. It's also kind of the most extreme, I think, because the drawings scared me. I was very young. There is that. And also, I think that's one of the ones that's most explicit about death. Yes. Death and... And ageing. And, you know, I I don't think it's a spoiler to say there is a happy ending, but it's not 
necessarily a hugely happy one. Uh, bad things happen. Sometimes they can't be reversed. That's the lesson. And it's one that the movie seems determined to... Yes. I, I don't know. The movies actually have not been able to contend with all that well. My first Rodal was The Twits. And, oh, sweet. Well, yes. Uh, but also it's a classic gross-out book, right? <laughs> like if you read The Twits, it's really just about Mr. and Mrs. Twit who are the worst. And what really got to me, aside from the... I found it on a bookshelf in uh, in my cousin's house. Uh, was it the cover that attracted you? It was the cover. It was the thinness. I was also reading anything I could get my hands yeah. on and, you know, it was within reach. So there it was. But what I enjoyed a lot about it was, aside from the gross out factor, and, and there's a lot of it. I mean, Mr. Twit has a beard that like traps food. <laughs> oh my God. Um, yes. Do you remember? Yeah. Uh, but the other thing that I loved was the delight in language. And that's something that I, I continue to hold Still, when I think about Rod Dahl and um, I'll grizzle you to a grozzle, I'll grozzle you to a grizzle. I laughed for like six weeks after that. I didn't know what it meant, but I'm I loved it. so glad you brought up the language. Um, firstly, worth saying that Roald Dahl was told that he's not good with writing or English when he was much younger by one of his teachers because he had a propensity for making up words and telling stories that didn't make sense, apparently. But I love, um, I mean, as a kid, but even as an adult, the ability to make up words that end up making sense. Scrum diddlyumptious. Yes. What is that? You know? I, but I still say it sometimes. I say <laughs> delumptious sometimes. Um, whiz poppers. Also the naming of the characters. Mm -hmm. So if you think of like a Bruce Bog Trotter, <laughs> or it, it just helps you. Miss Trunchbull is yeah. such a vivid name. Mm. I think that his propensity for language, he he also, of course, wrote poetry, um, particularly for children and, and, you know, gross out funny ones. He's got a rhythm in his writing that I appreciate even as an adult. Um, in fact, I think he appreciated more as an adult when I reread his work. So before we go over to the adult works in brief, I thought we could do the eight main rules that he applied on all his yes. children's books because it is quite telling, I think. Let's do them two by two. There are eight. So the first two. Just add chocolate, adults can be scary. Then, bad things happen, revenge is sweet. Keep a wicked sense of humour, pick perfect pictures. Films are fun, but books are better. And food is fun. <laughs> I mean, those are good rules for life, I feel. <laughs> not, like, just, not just you know. children's books. Just add chocolate is like a daily thing. Adults can be scary, good <laughs> reminder. So yes, that at least as far as his children's books went, uh, were his rules. Now, his adult stories, quite a different matter. We don't have to spend too long on them, I think. Uh, although I have to say that I love Rod Dahl's short stories. I know they're not all made equal. Uh, I know that particularly the later ones that often dealt with sexual fantasies and, and looked at women in particular ways haven't aged all that well and in some instances felt broadly unnecessary. But there are some short stories that truly live in my mind and that, that I think about. For instance, The Man from the South. It, it's a game that I've played with anybody who has smoked within oh, my vicinity for years. Yes. Um, the one with the mutton chop. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, I will say, I came to Roald Dahl's uh, adult short stories by mistake. I got a huge omnibus of his short stories huh. thinking they were children's books. I was a little too young, just graduating from kids' books to adult books. Opened them up, was horrified because I think the first thing I read was like an Uncle Oswald story. And See, I would, that's, yeah. that's one that I don't think is that good. It's not that great, but it's also very sexual. Yes. And I had my mind broken a bit. Lah. But 
when I came to it later on, his crafting of short stories is genius. The the rise of the action, the trick of the reveal. Um, he's a really good short story writer. He's a really good mystery writer as well. So I think that Kiss Kiss is a near perfect selection of short stories. I love them all. The one that you're referring to earlier isn't in this. I can't remember what that's called. I think it might just be called Lamb. I think it's called Lamb yeah. or Lamb for Dinner or something like yes. that. Yes, yeah. um, but Kiss Kiss contains stuff like uh, William and Mary, which I've always, always loved. The Way Up to Heaven, which has disturbed me for years and years. And and I think that it's actually quite a good starter. Although I also have a, a fondness. I seem to like the ones that Alfred Hitchcock then went and, <laughs> and uh, ad- adapted. But um, So like I said, Man from the South, but I also love Skin. Oh, Skin is great. Skin is also kind of dark and it's sad. It's very sad. Yeah. Um, Skin is a really good one. Did they adapt that one? No, right? I don't think so. Yeah. So I think the reason why I wanted to bring up Rod Dahl's adult writing is to ask you, he continues to be read. He's still best-selling year-round. So for people who know that their children someday will wander around the bookstore and see like, switch bitch and think, <laughs> that's the one. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that's me. How do we graduate, I think, is my question. Because both you and I, it happened kind of by accident. I think if you know that Roald Dahl has a whole adult selection, you can introduce it to them with stories. Henry Sugar is actually a great bridge. Yeah. Um, and then with stories like... Danny. Danny is a great bridge. Um I think something like Lamb for Dinner, I think that's what it's called. Those stories are softer, um, not quite as uh, problematic, I think, and as not, something like the Uncle Oswald's. Not quite as psych... So problematic is one thing, but the other thing is there are some that are really psychologically tense, right? And they don't... They're thrillers in the emotional sense. And I also think for those... I don't believe in a hard age limit, but I would say 15 and up is really when you should start. I don't think that a 12-year-old should necessarily be marching around Rod Dahl's short stories. Yeah, I agree. And then some of them are just, you don't need to know this much about how depressing it is to be an adult sometimes. To be an adult and married in Mm. particular. (laughs) There's like a a bit of a through line there. So yeah, that concludes Rod Dahl's writing. Can we talk a little bit about how he's remembered? Because he's remembered for... All the things that we've spoken about, uh, for somebody who has lived a a deeply interesting life, shaped generations upon generations of children's imagination, continues to sell. Netflix has just bought his estate, so I don't know what we're going to expect to see there. Matilda, the musical is coming up soon. So clearly, um, there's going to be generations more of Rod Dahl's stories and adaptations. And he's remembered for all of that. He's remembered for being a great Briton. Haha. But... There have also been allegations of uh, misogyny, of anti-Semitism, things like that. It's tough, right? Because, you know, I hate excusing any kind of bigotry by saying he was a man of his time. But I think for someone like Roald Dahl, particularly when it comes to the gendered stuff that's Mm. often levelled at his works, I often feel like, not the adult stuff, but particularly the kids stuff, for every difficult, mean woman, there's also a great cool woman to look up to. So The Witches in particular has come under scrutiny, right? And I struggle with reading that one in a sexist lens because Mm. I understand that the quote-unquote villains are all female, right? All being witches. But But like the magical old lady is also a woman. So that's the thing. And and I didn't register that uh, as a child, what I focused on absolutely was how great is grandma? Yes. You know, and so I I don't know. It's it's kind of a difficult one to talk about. I know that we both said we're fans and that therefore we might be coming at it with a specific lens. But 
But as longtime readers of Rod Dahl and as re-readers, I think mm. crucially, I've reread him as an adult as well. This is just not something that I, I find I can wholeheartedly agree with. Every time I reread Matilda, I think to myself, how empowered that book made me feel at a particular age when I was a little nerdy reading girl and felt like nobody else understood me. God, Matilda is so good. Matilda is just wonderful. Um, and as for the anti-Semitism, it's a huge, huge conversation. He, of course, fought in the Second World War. Mm. He didn't appreciate the Germans or Hitler very much. Um, but I think what happened was later on in life, he was an anti-Zionist. And that, that often then became conflated with being anti an, an, an anti-Semite. And in some instances was exacerbated by his own kind of... Belligerence. Belligerence and provocative statements. So, I mean, that is what it is. We would need 20 more minutes to get into that. But yeah. If I could just say, I think, as with most books that you might give younger people to read, the key would be to have a conversation. If you think something is problematic, to have that conversation with your kids and to talk about, well, perhaps we shouldn't judge people by their appearances. Perhaps we shouldn't think only women behave in a certain way. But that barring, I feel like there's so much good in Roald Dahl's books for kids that I cannot cannot say that this would be a negative thing. As always, talk to your children. Talk to your children <laughs> about what they're reading. I, I think that that's the best way forward. And read Rod Dahl, because, yes. my lord. Um, so we've been talking today about Rod Dahl, it being his, I'm not going to do the math. He was born on the 13th of September. And that's why we've dedicated this episode. We're going to be talking about adaptations of his work very shortly, of which there are many. But let us know, have you read Rod Dahl? Have you introduced Rod Dahl to a young reader? Do you have a favourite? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. <laughs> brings us to footnotes. So um, I'm going to be honest that we have always said that for our bibliography episodes, we do adaptations. Most of the time, we like it. It's great. Half the time though, and this is something that has been happening recently, we get to an author who for whatever reason doesn't have a lot of adaptations, which is when we might say, hypothetical biopics, are you interested? <laughs> I'm happy to report though um, that today, because we are talking about Rod Dahl, that is not the case. There are adaptations galore. Adaptations galore. And I think for better or worse, most of them, if they've not always been consistently great, have always been interesting. I mean, I think that's testament to the man himself and the kinds of stories he tells. I mean, Would we say even the most recent no, film was interesting? No, but I, I think that one I've safely erased from memory and Fair. only one The Witches exists for me. <laughs> but I think it's just, take something like Fantastic Mr. Fox. Who would have ever thought, I want a Wes Anderson touch to this story. And yet it's so gorgeous. It's it's one of the best adaptations made of, of a Roald Dahl work. And so it begins. Welcome to the fantastic world of Mr. Fox. Woo! Should we dance? His life is fantastic. <laughs> Pure wild animal craziness. His wife is fantastic. If what I think is happening is happening, it better not be. His neighbors. Not so fantastic. This is Boggus, Bunce, and Bean, three of the meanest, nastiest, ugliest farmers in his valley. What was that? They're digging us up. But they're about to discover... Oh, Foxy. Is help on the way? He's one fox. I've got an idea. Woo! 
you can't outfox. Mole, what do you got? I can see in the dark. We can use that. Rabbit, I'm fast. Badger, demolitions expert. What? Since when? So uh, that was going to be one of mine. I love Fantastic Mr. Fox by Wes Anderson uh, with Mr. Fox voiced by George Clooney. I think it is just... Meryl Streep, Mrs. Fox. I know. Uh, It's just a delight. I think the stop motion quality and the the strange kind of scraggly quality to to the foxes and to the the creatures living in and around the burrows is just so, so beautiful to watch. And it's a lovely chosen medium. Like, I think now we're so quick to assume that live action is the way to go, hence Lion King and and its ilk, um, and this belief that that's what modern audiences automatically want to see. But I think stop motion is really the perfect uh, format for that story. And I'm not ashamed to say that at the end of Fantastic Mr. Fox, I teared up because I was like, that's right. We are all just trying to be the best foxes we can be. Well, speaking of animation, um, I would say that one of my favourites, though not my top, which I'll save for later. Uh, James and the Giant Peach also works beautifully because of stop motion and animation. It's Henry Selleck uh, and I think he gets the kind of, the Aunt Spiker and the Aunt Sponge, the visual imagery of this peach with all the insects on it. It's beautiful to look at. It doesn't quite become as dark as the book, but I think it does a fine job and visually it's gorgeous. It is gorgeous, uh, but it also does a good job of the grunginess. So I agree that the story does doesn't go as dark, but the the kind of uh, grungy like yeah, peach is a great theoretical idea until you're in it, and then and then it's disgusting. And then it's just syrup everywhere. Exactly. Um, I think that the movie really manages to capture the sense of how dreamlike and wonderful the idea of a giant peach is, but also subsequently how how gross it can get. And that's an important quality in Rod Dahl adaptations, I think, the ability to go gross, because we were all raised, mostly, on Quentin Blake illustrations and, and those versions of what the characters and their falling into vat selves might look like. And so, because we have the illustration so firmly part and parcel of the books. I think the adaptations then have a high order to meet that. Ah, two points actually in relation to that. It's why I think even though intellectually, I thought the Steven Spielberg adaptation of BFG was good. I actually enjoyed watching it in the cinema, but it was too beautiful, if that made sense. I mean, BFG is about friendship. It's about growing up. It's about being alone, but it's also about farts. It is. And, you know, I was so disappointed when the scene with the snoscumbers or the scene with the, you know, farting and floating um, didn't necessarily work. The giants didn't look as gross as I would like them Mm, to mm, look. mm, mm. And and so I think I, I agree with you. I think Quentin Blake's illustrations have done a lot to give us a particular image in our mind. To which point... I get to my actual favourite, which is The Witches, the original one in the 90s with Angelica Houston playing the Grand High Witch. That movie gets the grossness of a Roald Dahl and a Quentin Blake. Witches of England. You're disgrace. Miserable witches. You're good for nothing worms. Everywhere I look, I see the repulsive sight of hundreds, thousands of revolting little children. I ask you, why? One child a week is no good to me. 
We will do better. We will do much better. <laughs> better is no good either. I demand maximum results. Yeah, but it's also perfect casting, right? It like, is. let's be real, because the casting of Angelica Houston as the, the head witch, basically, is inspired and is very, very hard to beat because you need that kind of imperious, frightening quality. And that movie just lands it and she really lands it. I think it's also not being afraid to lean into the weirdness of the of the story, right? Because that's what the, 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 the recent and already erased adaptation doesn't get quite right, which is that it's okay that this doesn't have to feel comfortable. The original Witches is genuinely terrifying in the same way that the book is terrifying. So my favourite, uh, and I, I can't remember if I've said this before, whether on this show or on Popcorn Culture, I love Matilda. I love Matilda, uh, the yes. book. I love Matilda, the movie. It was uh, formative in both instances, formative in my childhood years, both as a film as well as as a read. And I just think it manages everything. I mean, Danny DeVito and Rachel Perlman, um, you know, just everything is so perfect to the point that Mara Wilson hasn't even made another film. And it doesn't matter because she's so great in Matilda. Um, that movie is exactly how I imagined the book. I, and... and I know that sometimes that is a double-edged sword, but in this instance, it really isn't. It was just everything I wanted it to be. Once upon a time, there was a girl named Matilda. Hi, Dad. Get in the car, Melinda. Matilda. Whatever. Who was extraordinary in every way. Pretty soon you'll be able to do any multiplication, whether it's 2 times 7. 14. Or 13 times 379. 4,927. Wow. She can multiply large sums in her head. So can a calculator. But in a world where grown-ups make all the rules. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm big and you're small. I'm right. And you're wrong. In a school where the principal... In this school... I am God! ...has no principles. Yes, this time's Sir! She will discover... Somebody's got to teach her a lesson. ...deep inside herself... You should believe in whatever power you think you have inside of you. ...a secret weapon... To even the odds. No more Miss Nice Girl. When I watched the movie Matilda, I felt like my dream of what a, a book should look like on screen came alive. Miss Trunchbull in that film was perfect. Iconic. Um, I have also watched Matilda the Musical, which I actually really love. I'm quite excited that Netflix is going to do uh, an adaptation. I'm not quite sure how that's going to work because I feel like it was made for the stage. Uh, there's a scene with flying books that's just beautiful. I don't know. I, I We haven't gotten to the Charlies yet. Was that intentional? Because uh, it, I feel like that's always the sore point. Not intentional. Uh, before that, I, I wanted to say that I've also watched Matilda. I have a soft spot for Tim Minchin anyway. And so I'm quite excited to see it translated into a film, partly because I think musical translations to films stand a better chance, especially when they retain the staginess of the, the stage yes. productions. And a lot of them do. So... It might be quite exciting. So um, I was saving it for the end only insofar as to ask whether we're excited to see Timothée Chalamet take on Willy Wonka. People are talking about hot Willy Wonka. No, no, no. I'm and not... I don't know how to deal with that. No, no. Not hot Willy Wonka, but good actor Willy Wonka is fun. Yes. So here's the thing. Willy Wonka, for me, I feel like might be one of those characters that I don't want a backstory for. 
Um, I'm excited to see Timothy Chalamet play the role, but I feel like after watching it, I'm going to decide I don't want to remember it or I don't want to link it to the Wonka I know from the books. The movie Wonka said, uh, well, Gene Wilder's great, mm. but he's also not really the book Wonka. It's hard. It is very hard to capture Book Wonka because he's he's wonky. He's he's a very strange <laughs> yes. character. Yeah. It's you know it, it's all it's all there. But I I'm intrigued by the fact that you said the Charlies because that was a huge sore point for Rod Dahl who disowned uh, the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory uh, because he basically said that among other issues there isn't enough of a focus on Charlie. Yeah. That instead everybody gets so carried away by Willy Wonka by the Oompa Loompas that they forget that this is actually a story about Charlie and that and his family, in fact. And I think that that is a fundamental weakness of the film. I think it's also maybe a bit of an inherent weakness of filmmaking that you will always centre the character who seems most charismatic or intriguing. Outlandish. Yeah, and, and that Charlie, a disadvantaged, sweet-natured child, doesn't fall into that category. Actually, it was a real pity with the later adaptation, the Tim Burton one, because they were so invested in making Johnny Depp everything and, and more. Freddie Heimer was actually a really great Charlie. And he's a good actor. He's a good actor. And there are, there are moments there where I can see the bones of the Charlie that you see in the book. And I just wish that they had leaned into that more because ultimately even the, the new adaptation ended up being less about Charlie himself and more about Willy Wonka. I need quite a lot of space, I think, until the next Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You would have thought Tim Burton would be the right person to do it, no? Yes. just mm. I mean, Henry Selick nailed it. But again, maybe, I don't know, maybe an animated Charlie is what we need. Maybe. I, I, I am a little bit reluctant. I'm waiting to see what happens. I... I'm curious, there was an adaptation of Isio Trot by Richard Curtis, which is a book that we didn't get to talk about yeah. much uh, in the main body of the show. It's the last one that was published in Rod Dahl's lifetime. And I love it. It is my second Rod Dahl book. And I mean, Judy Dench, Dustin Hoffman. Like, it, it just sounds very intriguing. I really want to watch that. I actually didn't even know it existed until I was researching for the show. There are also a number of shorts, and even in Bollywood, for instance, I've bought, brought up the short story so many times by this point, the one with the lamb. Um, there have been versions of Roald Dahl short stories that have been made in so many different formats, um, and I think you'll, you're likely to find lists of them jumping around in the internet somewhere. And I've, I'd, I'd actually really love to see like a Black Mirror-style anthology of his shorts made into films. It's headed that way. I think there's a fair amount of um, Twilight zone kind of adaptations of Rod Dahl. But yeah, let us know. Um, what is your favourite adaptation of Rod Dahl's work? And is there an adaptation that hasn't been made that you would like to see? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, and of course, write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.